0: finishing up this study on the millennium and we're we'll actually not be talking about the millennium but have to be ready for that we've looked at week one the worship of the millennium how unique special defined that experience will be and how the scripture speaks very abundantly and plainly to uh, many of these things that seem to be Maybe jarring, a little unexpected, like the whole concept we talked about of animal sacrifice being reinstituted. But, but then we looked last week at the work of the kingdom. The fact that work is a gift and that we will be very busy for a thousand years. And involved in the ruling and the reigning as servant priests to those that inhabit the earth at that time. And very, very exciting to see that creation will base, basically bust loose at the seams in abundance the way God had intended to be before mankind fell and this oppression of sin and curses came upon us and it came upon us because we brought them upon ourselves basically through our representative head Adam. This morning we're going to look at waiting for the king. The fact is there's a kingdom we said there's going to be a king and the king is going to make a grand appearance and it will be a victorious time, a time for setting right the wrongs, bringing about justice and peace on this earth. But we will have a very special relationship because that king will also be our groom, the bridegroom of the church. And this morning we're going we're gonna to look at that in some detail, not maybe as much as some of you might like because you're not going to let me preach for three hours. So in so any case, we will... We will be summary in some of our comments and and look in the focus of the relationship. The relationship between us, the bride of Christ, and Jesus Christ, the king, the bridegroom of the church. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning exalting in your greatness, your goodness, your sacrifice, your undying love and faithfulness to us. You were the one that you came to like Hosea to Gomer, the one who prostituted herself, and you came and made us your wife, and you made us clean and holy, and you put us in a privileged place, and you gave us an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and reserved in heaven for us. And thank you, Lord. We could go on and on if we just extolled your greatness, your goodness, your love. This morning, Father, we we pray that that our hearts would be turned and changed, that we would respond to you in kind. And Father, we would understand the the beauty of prophecy and how it gives us the opportunity to prepare ourselves for these things. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. When is a big question? If you're a parent, you know when is a big question. Like that, when are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? How How many more hours till we get there? I... I've gone through that more than once, and it doesn't take nine kids for you to know that experience. You might only have one, and they're still asking the same question. There was an old date myself, but there was an old Heinz ketchup commercial with a song, Anticipation. Anticipation, and you see the ketchup achingly, slowly, barely making its way out. Anticipation is making me wait. Anticipation is making me wait. There's something good about waiting. There's something good about delayed gratification of not getting everything we want when we want it. We try to teach that to our kids, don't we? To have some discipline to think further down the road and to realize that the waiting is a good thing. Because, like the common phrase goes, absence does make the heart grow fonder. Or it should anyway, right? We're going to look at this in some detail, but I just want to give you some timeline perspective here with this chart that's in your notes. And if you don't have your notes, raise your hand and somebody will get those to you. I'm going to betray my, my conviction in this, this timeline here. You see, the church started at Pentecost. The arrow coming down is the ascent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost that came upon those followers of Jesus Christ, those people that were in that upper room. and It was dynamic and powerful, and they went out immediately sharing the greatness and the goodness of the gospel. And on one day, 3,000 people were brought into that baby church the church age has gone on for 2,000-plus years now, or near about 2,000 years, if you date the church around 32 A.D. And in a great many ways, the church has had diverse experience. It's had its problems. It's had its victories. But it has never missed out on the consistent faithfulness of God and His promises. The experience of the church is, is not so much dependent on what God And the holy spirit do it's dependent on our cooperation that's the whole doctrine of sanctification how do we respond well the church started on a day and i believe it's going to end on a day and that day is the rapture that is the day that paul talks about in first thessalonians Thessalonians chapter 4 which for even up to that time and first thessalonians was a very early written book it was a mystery and there was a problem there in Thessalonica because there was this understanding or this, this perspective of the early church that somehow they were going to be very busy about the gospel. It would go throughout the world and somehow in their generation, God was going to come back. Christ is going to return. And they became very unsettled because some people had died and the people were wondering because there was a doctrine spread that they somehow were going to miss out on the return of Christ because they had not survived long enough. And Paul writes to calm them down and comfort them and To remind them, hey, there is going to be this event where people bodily who are living are going to be snatched away in a moment. And the dead will also be raised up in a moment. And we will meet the Lord in the air. That's called the rapture by way of doctrine. That's not Jesus descending to the earth that we've talked about in the past. It's Jesus ascending to the clouds. And then what happens, in my opinion, is that the judgment seat of Christ takes place, which I will show you. There are some parallels here, but that is when we are examined. That's when we give an account, each one of us individually, for the works done in our bodies. We talked about from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 last week, whether they are worthwhile or worthless, wood, hay, and stubble burned up. And we will have to explain to the Lord how we live and stored this life, our time, our treasure, our talents, and truth. During that time on the earth, the concept or the experience of the tribulation, which is seven years period time, will take place on this earth. It is God pouring out judgment on mankind. Also, in the midst of that, God is showing mercy because he will allow witnesses to be raised up that will go throughout the earth, and they will be protected and sealed so that no one can harm them. And the gospel, again, will go out from the Jew first and then the Gentile, and God will allow there to be, again, a reaping in his mercy of mankind. This is also known, and this is part of the reason for my conviction of a pre-tribulation rapture, is that this is called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the day of the Lord. It's the day of wrath. It's also the 70th week of Daniel that we looked at in Daniel chapter 9 that was declared and explained specifically for the people of Israel, how God will fulfill his promises to them as a nation and bring about a new nation which will go into the millennium. And then, of course, we've looked at this time, this era that comes to the earth where Jesus comes to defeat the enemies that he has in this world that rise up against him, to defeat Antichrist, to throw the beast and the false prophet bodily into the lake of fire, and to begin this 1,000-year reign. So where are we? Well, we're, we're waiting. We're waiting. You see, there's another person that when is a big question for, and that's marriageable age young lady. You know, ladies want to know that guy that they've been with, when is he going to pop the question? When is he going to give me the ring? When is he going to give me a date? That's just bound up part of a woman. And honestly, men, be honest, that doesn't resonate with us the same way as it does with young ladies. And so what we have in the scriptures is this picture of a great romance, a great romance between a bridegroom who has come to take a bride. If you turn to the attached notes here, I almost go through the traditional Jewish wedding of the first century. Because I've said many times, one of the most important keys of interpretation is developing the discipline to hear the Bible from the viewpoint of the original audience. When Jesus speaks, In the Gospels, when Paul talks to at least predominantly or at least 50% Jewish congregations and says certain things, they're not mysteries to them in some ways. There there is a background and a culture that they understand the terminology. And so we have to step back 2,000 years into that. So there is this beautiful relationship between the Jewish wedding of that time and Christ in the church. In a Jewish wedding, the bridegroom took the initiative to travel from his father's house to the bride's house. Jesus left his father's house to come to the earth to gain his bride. A price had to be paid to secure the bride. This is the betrothal price, which is the purchase of us by the blood of Christ. Once a price was paid, the man and woman entered into a marriage covenant and were legally and officially man and wife, although the marriage had not been consummated. Joseph took Mary as his wife. That was his wife, legally. And then she went back to her, you know, she stayed at her family, right? The believer has been declared to be sanctified or set apart exclusively for Christ. On entering into the covenant, the bride was declared to be set apart for the groom. The couple drank a cup of wine to symbolize the covenant relationship. Once anticipated, the entering into the covenant with the symbolism of a cup of last supper. After the covenant was in effect, the groom returned to his father's house and remained there for 12 months. Christ returned to the father's house following the payment of the purchase price. During the separation, the bride gathered her wardrobe, prepared for married life. The groom prepared living accommodations in his father's house for his bride. Basically, let's put an additional on dad's house, you know, because they had, they had land or property given down to them, and they would just expand the house for another family. Christ is preparing a place for his bride and is using gifted leaders in the mutual ministry of the saints to perfect the bride for the coming wedding. After time was completed, the groom proceeded, usually at night, with his male escorts to the home of the bride. Christ will soon return from his father's house with the angelic host. The bride was expecting the groom to come for her, her, but she did not know the time. The bridegroom's arrival was preceded by a shout. The bride must be ready for the groom's appearing and is calling us up with a shout, 1 Thessalonians 4. The groom received the bride with her attendants and returned to his father's house. The bride will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air to be with him for all time thereafter. The bride and groom then entered the bridal chamber for the first time, entered into physical union, thereby consummating the marriage. Christ's union with the church will take place in heaven, last for all eternity. Might say there that that was also an examination. Was that bride faithful while she was separated from the groom? That's what the judgment seat of Christ is. It's testing out our faithfulness. And you can see the addendum or the appendix I added. We don't have time to go into it, but there's quite a number of verses there and some discussion there at the end of the notes on the judgment seat of Christ. We alluded to it. We spent some time last week in it, but you should study that more closely. After consummating the marriage, the couple joined the gathered guests and friends and entered into a time of feasting and celebration. Christ and his bride will descend victoriously to conquer the earth and enter into a thousand year celebration of righteousness, peace, and joy. C.S. Lewis called it the great romance. Absolutely. Absolutely. What else could it be? It is a heart-to-heart relationship. It is intimacy. It is connectedness. Sometimes we don't feel connected. See, if marriage takes place when the bride and groom are united, then I see the judgment seat of Christ as the experience of the intimate conversation of what would transpire between husband and wife in the bridal chamber as they discuss and catch up up Catch up on what has been going on while they were separated, how they have been preparing to meet one another. Do you see the picture there? You see the amazing picture there. So, if you turn to Revelation chapter 1, again, we won't spend a ton of time on anything prophetic, but we do want to talk about where we are in asking the question when with anticipation. These letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. They were literally physical churches that existed in age of minor. I believe they were truly going through the experiences and the events that are described there, the the ups and the downs, the the failures and the needs for repentance, the promise and and the encouragement to carry on and be faithful for the sake of reward. But I think scholars have also rightly said that they are somewhat representative of churches throughout the church age that each one of them kind of can give a glimpse into the character of any given church or body of Christ throughout this 2,000-year period of time. There's churches just like the suffering church, right now in existence in other parts of the world. We may not be experiencing it, but some of our brothers and sisters are. There are churches that are becoming, how should I say it, more apostate. They are becoming more concerned about political correctness instead of doctrinal tenacity. There's a church that's fairly exemplary. It's the first church that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 2. And this is what the first message to the church of Ephesus. And Ephesus would have been a prominent church. You read these other other cities where these churches are. We would know Ephesus very clearly from Paul's ministry. We know very clearly because that was a beachhead for a seminary, basically, where where, where young Young followers of Christ were prepared and built up and then sent out after being basically grounded in their faith and their doctrine. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you have found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Man, those are great things. Those are great things to be said about any church, wouldn't you say? You care about doctrinal clarity. You care about having convictions. You care about calling out the compromise and the sin and false teaching. Wonderful, wonderful things something that every church should also care about because personal faithfulness starts with doctrinal faithfulness cut the scriptures straight feed it to the people straight tell them the truth these are good things let's notice this but i have this against you man that's a harsh word isn't it this is jesus speaking to a church i have this against you you have left your first love You're going through all the busyness of being a church. You're doing all the good things, but you forgot that this is a relationship, and I want to be connected intimately to you. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first. What is he saying? Go back to the courting relationship, and you understand what that what that just said, right? Go back to the same sense of focus and creativity and energy when you were trying to win that woman, where that's all you could think about, being with her, finding a way, doing sacrificial things, crazy things like driving hours on a Friday night just to be there for a Saturday, part of a Sunday, and drive all the way back to be at work on Monday. Go back to the first things. Go back to things that caused your heart to jump when you saw that person come in the room. Do the first deeds, or else I'm coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its, in pla- out of its place unless you repent. Whew. Basically, Jesus is saying, I'll take your church away. I- I'm just, I- I'll get somebody else to do the work. I'll move on to some other group of believers. Again, encouragement, you know, yet this you do have, you hate the deeds of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Look, Jesus is always trying to be the encourager, the exhorter, trying to, to woo us, to, to use kindness to bring us to repentance. And so it is that I think what we need to ask when we talk about waiting for the return of the king who is also our bridegroom is, have we left our first love? Have we just become do, too distracted even by good things that we've forgotten that this is a romantic relationship? I'm going to give you some signposts about why our faith isn't just about dogma and doctrine, why it really is a relationship. I'm going to give you some evidences on the positive side, that you are maintaining a first love faithfulness to your groom. And I gave you a lot to write, so I'll repeat it. Some of them are longer, some are shorter. Number one, you remember who you were. You remember who you were who were you before you met that person who was so special in life? I mean, great matches, as they say, opposites attract. Usually that person is admirable in your eyes because you know what you lack and you know what you need. That's really wise in picking a mate, by the way. You remember who you were. Number two, you are gratefully awed by the price that was paid to make you Who you are. You are gratefully awed by the price that was paid to make you who you are. Man, this is what you once were, Paul said to the Ephesians, right? But now you're this. What changed? The interposing of the blood of Christ on your behalf, that betrothal price. To the side, how do we go through a renewed experience of these two things? The Lord's Supper. You remember who you were, and you're grateful for who you've now become. The Lord's Supper is meant to create that kind of intimate connection once again. It's meant to be that opportunity that we don't come to the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner by just blowing off unconfessed sin, as if that's okay just to come into that relationship in that intimate moment of remembering the death and resurrection of Christ and then not dealing with our own sin and outstanding things that we know we need to make right. Number three, you desire intimate communication. You desire intimate communication. What is that? That's Bible study and prayer, isn't it? God speaks to you intimately. His Holy Spirit speaks by way of of conviction and encouragement and instruction and direction and guidance. And we speak to God in prayer on intimate levels and we pour out our heart and we cast our burdens, Peter says, 1 Peter, on him, knowing he cares for us. Number four. You catch yourself imagining he's here and thinking about life together. You catch yourself imagining he's here and thinking about life together. That's the scriptural discipline of meditation, isn't it? Meditation is you take those words, you take those love letters, and you read them again, and you read them again, and you read them again so you know them by heart. Process of meditation, where the word of God becomes a part of us. Number five, you have a heightened Sensitivity to what would please him, you have a heightened sensitivity to what would please him. That's the development of conscience and dis- conscience and discernment, conscience and discernment. Paul said in First Timothy that we're to hold two things: we're to hold faith and a good conscience. He said by which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Don't sear your conscience. Don't become hardened. And it should be in the context of, would Christ be pleased with this? It goes to the level of not just the black and white, but the gray areas. Those areas where, would, would, would Christ be satisfied? Would he be happy with what I'm doing, what I'm saying, what I'm thinking? Development of a good conscience. Number six, closely related. You worry how what you do will affect his reputation. You worry how what you do will affect his reputation. That's a development of godly character. There's fruit of the spirit. Those characteristics that make you want to imitate and be like the groom. You worry about how what you do will affect his reputation. And now we get into some practicalities here. Number seven, you busy yourself with the task left to be completed. You busy yourself with the task left to be completed. That's what Titus chapter 2 says. That Let's turn to that. That's a good verse. Let's, let's turn to that. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking forward to the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The grace of God appeared, and it issues out in three participial phrases, three things the grace of God should do. It has a past experience, that is, it brought salvation to us. It has a present work, grace of God has a present work of instructing us or teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And it's also causing our mind to be put forward looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous, white-hot for good deeds. You busy yourself with the task left to be completed. This is the process of us performing good works, of having a good stewardship, Taking our responsibilities for finite things with a view for eternity. And looking forward to that time when we'll be able to say, like we talked last week, that when we do have that examination at the judgment seat of Christ, we'll long to hear, well done, you good and faithful servant. Number eight, you brag about how great a guy he is to others. Right? Well, my Jimmy, do you know what he did for me? Do you know where we went? Do you know how he surprised me? Sorry, ladies can't help but do it, right? Men, hopefully, bragged on that girl. Wife, yes. When you think the world is wrapped around that person you love, that the sun rises and sets on them, you have to talk about them. What is that? That's witnessing, isn't it? That's all witnessing is. It's bragging about our relationship to somebody very special to us. It's also the process of how we encourage one another in corporate worship. When we sing songs that what we have that extol the wonder, the majesty, the beauty of who Jesus is, we encourage one another and remind one another to keep our focus on this wonderful, amazing person that we're betrothed to. Number nine, you are eager to see him, you are eager to see him, and you are longing for his return and are longing for his return. You're eager to see him and longing for his return because you have focused on the first eight. Don't you think if you'd done the other eight in the list that this is going to be a great day of anticipation that's worth the wait. You're eager to see him or longing for his return because you have focused on the first eight. This is the orientation of the heart toward eternal values. The orientation of the heart toward eternal values. You know, sometimes Christ in his wisdom allows the church to go through terrible experiences. Deprivation, persecution, mocking, hatred, torture, martyrdom. It's easy to ask in any one of those very negative negative things that we can experience in the course of following Christ. Did you forget about me? Do you still love me? Do you remember me? And people, if you read Christian biographies, people really have asked those questions. That's a human thing. But what I also find when I read those biographies is people who love the appearing of Christ. They say, even so, Lord, come. I can't wait. Do you love and long for the Lord's appearing? Or if we just got so wrapped up in every day, I got this to do, I got this to do, I got a list to check, I got things to accomplish, I got responsibility, that we just have kind of lost sight of eternity. That's the beauty of prophecy, isn't it? It forces us to put our minds on things above, put our minds on things that are yet to come, and to allow that, that mystery and those open question marks, because we don't know it all. We don't know every detail. I mean, there's a lot there, but there's so much more and allow our minds and hearts to be drawn magnetically forward toward the future. You see, there's a beautiful thing. Not only as we looked in Titus chapter 2, but if you turn over a couple pages to 2 Timothy chapter 4, God really wants us, he really wants us to have this embedded in our heart. Paul said in verse 6, he's, he's in prison, his second imprisonment, he's about ready to be killed. He says, I have fought the good fight, verse 7. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Paul saying, I have stayed laser focused. I have, I've been busy with the stewardship. I've been busy loving the groom. I've been busy looking forward and longing, and even as I'm riding in this cell, knowing I'm going to die, I can't stop thinking about this, that it's going to be worth it. There's a, there's a reward there. It's the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, of righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And notice what Paul says. And not only to me, not only to me who is an apostle, not only to me who is a martyr, but to all who have loved his appearing. It's, it's the anticipation, isn't it? It's, it's wondering and asking the big question, when? When, Lord? When is this coming? I don't know about you. I've I've spent my entire life through my parents who had us around elderly people. Now my folks are in their eighties. I guess there's something there's something sad about you know the decay that goes on as we get older. But there's also something beautiful about the fact that as I see people that they get older who are followers of Christ over decades, man, this is on their mind. This is on their mind, and we need to learn the wisdom of the gray-haired and the people who've lived through the the trials and the difficulties and the failures and the successes that they just it's on their mind to see jesus you know christ also commands us to do this turn to luke chapter 12. you know we we've talked about and I've, i've mentioned to you i've done some things to bring them up many times that jesus part of the part of the great commission is jesus says to his followers who became leaders of the church teach the church to obey my commands Allow this to be the core curriculum of the church, the things I've commanded you to do. Luke chapter 12, after Jesus has talked about how it's so easy for us to become so focused on material things and become worried and anxious and to forget that we have a great heavenly father that bestows on us all good things, right after talking about and telling us, this is another one of his commands, verse 31, to seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give the charity, make yourselves purses which do not wear out. This command on, part of the command on stewardship, if you remember from last week. And unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near, nor moths destroyed. Jesus is talking again. The future is going to be worth it. The future is going to be worth it. The sacrifices, the cost you pay is going to be worth it. And then he says this, starts right off with command, verse 35, be dressed in readiness. What does that mean? Well, if you go back to Revelation 19, you'll, you'll see that the church arrives with Christ in white raiment, bright and clean. And editorially, John says, and these are the righteous acts of the saints. She has made herself ready. It's not only that the groom is working through the Holy Spirit to do that, but there is this cooperative sense that the church has made herself ready for the day, just like any engaged woman wants to go try on those dresses and get the whitest, brightest, most perfect and beautiful one possible. That's our focus. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps alight. And be like men who are waiting there's there's a couple different things going on here that's the bride side then he gives you another and keep your lamps alight and then another illustration and be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks blessed are those servants whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them reclined at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or in the third or finds them so. blessed are those slaves. Be sure of this. If that head of the household had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready. Again, command. For the son of man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. It could happen at any moment. At least for us. I think everything prophetically on the timeline of history is a very pregnant moment. We have people who are going to great lengths to push us to a one world government. We're on the doorstep. Are we ready? Am I ready? I'm I'm just like you. I get caught up in whatever's going on in a week. So I'm talking to me too. understand that. Are we ready for the king's return? let's pray our father we are so grateful we're so thankful that you give us opportunity to repent to stop as c.s lewis says to stop playing in the sand and the puddles when we we've got the wonderful ocean in front of us an ocean of your blessing and anticipating of what is to come and all the glorious state that it will be and all the wonderful opportunities it will have to to work for you to serve you to serve Mankind to worship you unrestrained and apart from the sinfulness and the brokenness of walking around in the sin of flesh. And Father, help our hearts be quickened and excited with anticipation for the day you will shout, the trumpet will, will sound, and the voice of the archangel will call us, and we will, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we we'll be caught up. To be together with you in the clouds. And thus, we will be with you forever and ever and ever and ever. So, Lord, do your work by your Spirit. Convict us where we need convicted. Encourage us where we're growing weary and faint hearted. Stir our minds and our imagination where we become dull and we have not been meditating and anticipating these things. And energize us that we might be zealous to good works so that we have something worthwhile to offer up to you as an offering.